Good morning. I'm so happy to see you all on this somewhat chilly morning after we had such a nice, lovely week of weather. It was a little bit surprising when it was so cold this morning. Um, I really enjoyed the warm weather this week. One afternoon, I went to a coffee shop and I decided to work out on the patio since it was nice. And so I was researching the scripture that we're going to be talking about today. And I planned to sit there until 630 because that's when I was meeting a friend for dinner. But this thing happened about 6 p.m. It got really dark outside. And after it got dark, I was like, oh, I can't work anymore. My, I can't focus on anything. So instead, I Googled, where has the most hours of sunlight? I know you guys want to know. Okay, it is Yuma, Arizona. It's the sunniest place on the whole earth. It has a total of 11 hours of sunlight in the winter and up to 13 in the summer. It experiences over 4,000 hours of sunshine per year. That sounds lovely. I mean, is it in the middle of the Sonora Desert where it doesn't have enough rain? Yes, it is, but those are just details. It doesn't matter. In the United States, the darkest place on Earth is Barrow, Alaska. It's the northernmost point in the United States, and it can go two months without seeing any sunlight. It's located really close to the Arctic Pole, and um, when the sun goes down, sometimes you won't see it for three months. You guys, I would never get anything done, ever. Now, of course, the sun doesn't rise and set for my own productivity, apparently, but it's true that the amount of sunlight that we receive can have a direct effect on our mental health. Living in places that don't receive very much sunlight can make us really prone to depression because we don't have enough vitamin D even though we live in Texas and we don't experience any days, thankfully, of total darkness, we still feel those long nights sometimes. And we know how those can feel lonely. Nights can keep us isolated because in the darkness, we can't always see those people who are around us. Today, our scripture comes from the book of Isaiah. Now, Isaiah is a long book. Uh, scholars break it up into three separate books. Um, and today, we will be looking at something that's in the first book of Isaiah. It's in chapter 9. So the context here is that there is an Assyrian army, and it's occupying the area. So the Jewish people who are living there have been oppressed. Let's turn to Isaiah 9. We'll start in, in verse 1. Nonetheless, those were who, in who were in distress won't be exhausted. At an earlier time, God cursed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But later, he glorified the way of the sea, the far side of the Jordan, the and the Galilee of nations. Okay, you guys, that doesn't make any sense if you're just reading it for the first time. Um, so this, there was an invasion of the people by the Assyrians. And then there's a second invasion of people. And they go into this area, the tribal regions of Zebulon and Naphtali. Those are invaded. And the Assyrians set up some administrative provinces in that area. So they set up three of them. One is near Dor, a city by the way of the sea. Another one is at the capital of Ramuth Gilead, which is beyond the Jordan. And the third one is at Magadu, I'm sure I'm pronouncing that correctly, which includes Galilee in the northern plains. So that's, we're a little bit oriented. 
The rest of it's easier because it's just a beautiful poem. Let's look at it. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in pitch dark land, the light has dawned. You have made the nations great. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy of the harvest, as those who divide plunder and rejoice. On the day of Midian, you've shattered the yoke that burdened them, the staff of their shoulders and the rod of their oppressors. The word of God for the people of God. Let the church say, amen. Okay, this specific passage Scholars have a little bit of difficulty placing exactly what's happening here. The two chapters before have been talking about the birth of a new king that is to come. And so this poem potentially is for the coronation of that king who's been born, or potentially the new king is still a baby. We're not super sure. But either way, it's the start of a new reign in Jerusalem. And it seems like that's potentially also coordinated with the death of this oppressive leader who has done all these campaigns into their land. So there's a lots of reason for these people to be celebrating. We see that within the passage, they say, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Now, whether or not the oppression has actually ended or they're just looking forward to it, we're not sure, But it almost doesn't matter because the passage talks about this everlasting peace. It talks about something that's just bigger than what is happening exclusively in this passage. Now, the king that they're talking about was a real king in the time of Isaiah. But as Christians, we read it and we interpret it to be Jesus. The promise of a king who brings light to all things and who keeps us from feeling like we're stuck in a dark night. The passage contains this expectant hope that it won't be like this forever. But this hope can be hard to believe and sometimes harder to hold on to. When our families are having a rough time, when we're too anxious to function, whenever we stop and think, huh, maybe I'm experiencing depression, All of these times, that hope doesn't feel very tangible. And it's then, I think, that we need to talk about how we see embodied hope in other people. We've been talking about mental health here for the past, last week and in the next coming week. It's something that we care about as a church. And the author, Lisa Miller, who will be here next weekend, have I told you guys that? Dr. Lisa Miller looks at this connection between mental health and spirituality because she has an inclination that these two are connected. She cites a bunch of studies, and uh, if you're interested, there's a very detailed reference page in the back of the book. You can go look at sample sizes and all of that important information that I won't explain all of to you today. So she talks about this doctor named Dr. Jacob Greenberg, and he is a neuropsychologist at the University of Mexico. And he did a series of experiments, starting with these two people sitting in a room together, meditating for 20 minutes. So these people don't know each other, but they're meditating together, and they're thinking about how they're connected to one another. And then after that, they go into separate rooms, and they measure brain activity, using an EEG, 
And they found that participants who had intentionally bonded, their brainwave patterns would sync up even if they were in separate rooms, unable to communicate. And another version of this same experiment, one of the people, um, whenever some, one person was in a separate room, then one person would receive light flashes. They received 100 light flashes in their eye, and the person who had been meditating with them previously, while they didn't receive any light flashes, they registered some brain activity that light flashes were happening 25% of the time. So the term for whenever two oscillating things, like brainwaves, brainwaves oscillate, uh, whenever they become synchronized, that's called entrainment. I didn't know that, the book told me. So if we think about two vibrating waves, when they sync up, we call it entrainment. And Dr. Grinberg's research revealed that brainwave entrainment happens whenever people empathetically bond to one another. Another neuroscientist, Andrew Newberg, at the Marcus Institute for Integrative Health, which is in Philadelphia, he found that through MRI and PET scans, that strengthening entrainment goes up whenever people are together in a transcendent state, when something they're experiencing something holy. When people pray together, in this case, in the same room, it accelerates the rate that it takes for worshipers to activate the neural pathways of worship, to be in a prayerful state. It's though the spiritual state of someone is not only shared, but it's contagious because when they had nine people praying in a room together, when a 10th person came in, their neural pathways got there much quicker to also be in a worshipful state. It reminds me of this room. Whenever we're here, and worshiping together in this space. Our brains are focused on worshiping God, and someone walks in, we help facilitate their spirituality because we're connected. Dr. Lisa Miller's research um, studies some of the same parts of the brain. The, the parts of the brain that she found were connected to this state of spirituality and mental health are the same that these researchers had also found. Um, in case you want to know, it is the um, parietal lobe, it is, um, which is in the posterior part of the brain. I got a C in college anatomy, so you guys can trust me. So... Whenever people experienced a major depressive episode and then after developed a strong sense of spirituality, that part of their brain saw a lot of thickening and they were less likely to experience another major depressive episode, even if they had a lot of risk factors for experiencing depression again. Okay, this is the last study I'm gonna tell you about, I promise. Today, anyway. So it was at North Hawaii Community Hospital, and they used eye technology to examine if healing thoughts are sent at a distance, would it correlate to brain function? So these native Hawaiian healers were chosen, and they were supposed to each choose someone with whom they were deeply bonded, someone they knew in their personal lives who they had a strong connection with. So they would come in with that person, and the receiver, the person that the healer chose, um, would be set up to a scanner, and the other person, the healer, was in a separate building further away. Now, at a time that the original person doesn't know about, the healers are told to send 
um, prayers or thoughts of healing to that person for two-minute intervals. And they're recording each person's brain. Now, the part of the brain that's associated with this healing lit up whenever the person was sending healing thoughts to them 10 out of 11 times. For this to happen by accident, uh, the chance is one in 10,000. So the researchers concluded that it's possible for compassionate healing intentions to be sent over a distance and to have direct physical impact on the recipient. Now, we already kind of knew this as people of faith. Um, it's called prayer, and we engage in it a lot. We think that sending healing prayers to people can have an impact on them. We believe that spiritually, spirituality affects people in our communities. In the final study that we talked about today, it's not only people who are random, but the healers were asked to choose people that they knew closely. It's that our connectivity to other people has a positive impact. We share hope with people when we're deeply connected to them. Today in our scripture, verse 3 says that they rejoice at the joy of harvest. The imagery of harvest is all throughout the Bible, and it's so lovely. It's used so often because you have to plant something and take care of it and nurture it and continually come back to it in order for there to be a harvest, in order for there to be something left. It makes me think, what kind of relationships are we cultivating? What is it that we're continually coming back to to take care of? Right now, um, we are together worshiping in this space. We have a community. We can reach out to one another when we need each other. Who is it in your life, though, that's isolated, that doesn't have a community, that may be experiencing a really long night? Who needs a friend? Several years ago, I was working in a small church, and um, this community had a lot of rural poverty, I would say. And so the church, way before I had gotten there, had decided to do an after-school program. So they would give kids meals, and they would give them a safe place to be so parents could work, and it was free to families. So it was a really nice asset to the community. That had started and disbanded long before I got there, but whenever the youth ministry that um, was taking off, then a lot of those kids that came were kids who had come in elementary school to the after-school program. One of those kids became super, super involved, and so she would come to church on Sunday mornings, and she would usually come in and sit by herself, and we were so glad to have her there. And then one day, a mom in the church, she had some really, really active and wild kids, she called me and she said, hey, do you think that that person, this teenager, do you think she'd be a good fit for a babysitter for my family? I said, of course, I think that that's a great idea. So she was hired and she came and started babysitting for the family and the kids loved her, everything was going well. And at some point, um, they discovered that both the teenager and the mom had had strained relationships with a step-parent. And that just really struck the mom's heart, and she began to be such an important part of this teenager's community. 
she uh, took them on family vacations with them, even helped her get her first car. So whenever we would come to church, then the teenager would now be sitting with this family. They're sitting all together, and it was just an outward sign of the deep connection that was happening between the people. In a world full of long nights, may we see the light of, that Christ brings to the world, and may our connections be a testament to that hope. Amen.